Brothers and sisters, even as we speak this morning, Norway is gathering strength to prepare for the possibility of a coming war, as is the rest of of Europe. Know that Russian spies have been captured and drones have been confiscated, uh, taking pictures of Norway's installations and airports. Soldiers are stationed at the border. Norway is drafting thousands of young men uh, and women, I think, too, into civil defense positions. And I've been told that Norway's not been at this level of high alert since World War II. And I don't know whether we're facing World War III or just a new era of Cold War politics, but the nuclear threat is growing. Even as we've read in the global news recently, Russia staged a massive nuclear strike recently, and I know that NATO's preparing to stage uh, nuclear defense uh, deterrence exercises over Belgium, Britain, and the North Sea as well. So we live in exceptional times. Uh, Particularly if you're a student of history, you know that uh, these days are perilous. And I hope it doesn't come to open war, but only the Lord knows uh, what will what will happen. It does feel as though peoples and nations and ideologies are reaching the boiling point, and I do pray that God would spare us from the evil and devastation of another war. But I invite you to join me in prayer that the Lord would have mercy and spare us in these days. But We need to understand, come what may, why such times exist. You know, why did days like World War I or World War II or the days we're facing now, why do they exist? Why do events that drive millions of people from one end of the globe to the other exist? We need to understand that history and the history that we're living is not an accident. That God's providence is orchestrating the events, the very events unfolding before our eyes. And he has a purpose that we must know. And as we turn to the book of Joel, we're going to find an answer for why. Why do days like these exist? And in Joel, we're going to see three things this morning. We're going to see that current disasters foreshadow God's coming judgment. We're going to see that the day of the Lord will be a day of unsurpassed terror. But we're also going to see that the day of the Lord will be a blessing for his repentant people. So Joel, as well as we really discover when you dig, any, dig into any passage of Scripture, it speaks today. As one of my uh, teachers said, you know, Chicago's in Corinth. And right now, Stavanger is in the book of Joel. And this world is in the book of Joel. The same things they needed to hear, we need to hear today. And not only is it a warning But if we listen rightly, it's also a comfort to us. And this prophetic work of Joel is given to us 
not just to warn us, but to give us comfort in trying days as well. And my prayer is that you will leave with comfort as we spend some time with Joel this morning. So let's look at the first thing we can learn that, number one, current disasters foreshadow God's coming judgment. Current disasters foreshadow God's coming judgment. Joel begins with the reminder of two disasters that Judah faced in recent days because of their sins. These disasters were so great that Joel said, it will be recounted to your great-grandchildren. So this isn't some kind of just temporal disaster that you'll you know, happen like you, your, your car blew a tire and you got it fixed and then you forget about it. This is something that they're going to tell their great-grandchildren about. And chapter 1, verse 2, Joel says, Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? Tell your children of it and let your children tell their children and their children to another generation. The first disaster Judah faced was the devastation of their land by a plague of locusts. So they had a a locust infestation that wiped them out. And this devastation is described in chapter 1, verse 4. What the cutting locusts left, the swarming locusts has eaten. What the swarming locusts left, the hopping locust has eaten. And what the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. You know, if you've seen pictures of what locusts do, you will understand the level of destruction. It is, it's fierce and unbelievable. Deborah was uh, watching the news uh, or scrolling through something the other day, and she showed me a picture of what an ant looks like, uh, in like a macro photography portrait of an ant. They are terrifying creatures. So I thought I'd do the same with locusts. And likewise, I mean, locusts, they're, they're all business. If you, you know, if they were like human size, we'd be running from them. They're, they're terrifying. But these locusts, have you seen pictures of a locust infestation? There's nothing left after the swarm passes through. It's, it's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. And here in recent days, Judah faced such an infestation of locusts, and Judah is ransacked. The, the grocery store, as it were, is pillaged. And if that's not enough, a second disaster fell upon Judah, which was a drought. And we read in verse 11, Be ashamed, O tillers of the soil. Wail, O vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley because the harvest of the field has perished. The vine dries up, the fig tree languishes. Pomegranate, palm, and apple, all the trees of the field are dried up, and gladness dries up from the children of man. You know, it's a little bit difficult to appreciate the level of severity that happened to Judah because we have Amazon. We have, we have ways of shipping and sending stuff quickly to deal with stuff like this. But for those in Judah, they had nothing. They were completely bereft. And what Joel is saying to Judah is that God has just given them the one-two punch for their sins. They have no food and they have no water. 
No food and no water, or very little to speak of. And this event was so terrible that they're going to tell their great-grandchildren about it. You know, this event really isn't that much different than, say, what Europe and what the United States faced during the Great Depression. Not quite a hundred years uh, ago. You know, European countries during the period of, from 1929 to 1939 were in very dire straits. Uh, for example, there was mass poverty and mass unemployment. Uh, for Poland, Germany, and Austria, just to, to cite one uh, example, a fifth of their population was unemployed and their, G, their GDP, their gross domestic product, fell almost in half, fell by 40%. Banks were collapsing. Uh, I have read that inflation in Central Europe ran as high as 2,000% per year. 2,000% per year, which means that retirement accounts, savings, all of that became nothing overnight. Everything that people had worked their whole lives for all of a sudden was worthless because of this inflation. And the situation was not much better in the U.S. If you're familiar at all with the history there, I'll give you a few examples. Uh, The stock market crash of October 24th, 1929, which is called Black Thursday, rocked the U.S. One commentator wrote that in five hours' time, Black Thursday cost the American people as much money, by one estimate, as the United States had spent on the First World War. So in five hours, the entire cost of fighting the Germans in World War I was spent. Suicide rates went through the roof. Almost 25% of Americans were unemployed, which is 12.9 million people. So that, what is that? About not quite three times the population of Norway was, was roughly um, unemployed. Uh, and further, if that wasn't enough, there was an ecological disaster known as the Dust Bowl that caused 2.5 million people to leave the Dust Bowl states in south, uh, the southern part of the U.S. and central part of the U.S., which constitutes one of the largest migrations in American history. Friends, this thing that happened not, not even 100 years ago that we still tell each other about is also one of these examples and warnings to us that the day of the Lord is coming. History is replete with disasters and stories of wars that have shaken the earth and left peoples and nations desolate, just like Judah. And the question is, why And as I've said already, the Bible tells us that these disasters are a reminder of the day of the Lord that is to come. We read in verse 115, as Judah's processing this horrible event that just happened to them, the prophet says in chapter 1, verse 15, Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near, and as destruction from the Almighty. It comes. You know, Jesus said the same thing to his disciples in Matthew 24 on the Mount Mount of Olives. He said, 
and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. Jesus is telling us that wars and rumors of wars are going to happen, that they must take place for their signs of the end. But they themselves are not the end. They point to something worse for an unrepentant world. But at the same time, we'll also see they point to something utterly hope-filled for the people of God. But let's now turn our attention to what this day will be like. And our second point, that the day of the Lord will be a day of terror. The day of the Lord will be a day of terror. Joel tells us, as we turn to chapter 2 in his book, he says that the day of the Lord will be a day of trembling. Chapter 2 opens up with his command, Blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming It is near. And the reason for the trembling is that the army of the Lord is coming. And he goes on to say, A day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, like blackness there is spread upon the mountains a great and powerful people. Their like has never been before, nor will again after them through the years of all generations. This army that is coming is the Lord's army. It's figuratively depicted like a locust, a plague of locusts. We see more of the language as uh, Joel goes on. He says in verse 3, for example, The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but behind them a desolate wilderness and nothing escapes. And Joel is speaking about the devastation that is going to come upon Jerusalem in the coming days. This is a day that no one can endure. In verse 11, he says, the Lord utters his voice before his army, before his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? And we need to understand the day of the Lord in this context that Joel is speaking about a day that is coming. And that day is partly manifested in the coming of Assyria in Babylon. So Assyria is going to come as the Lord's army and wipe out the northern ten tribes. And Babylon, a century later, is going to come as the Lord's army, and wipe out those in Judah, in the southern kingdom. And no one will be able to withstand that day. They all get taken out. None but the poorest of the land are left there to do the maintenance things to keep the land going. But everyone's wiped out. Everything that they knew was destroyed. Like a plague of locusts, Babylon came in, took all the gold, took all the treasures, took all the leaders, took all the people, and brought them into captivity. And yet as we come to the New Testament, we learn that that was just a foreshadow 
of a greater day and the final day of judgment that is to come. This is going to be a day that Malachi, who wraps up the prophet, says, but who can endure the, the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. And as we come to the New Testament, Jesus speaks of this coming day. For example, when he tells the parable of the weeds in Matthew 13, he talks about, he tells this parable of a man who had a field, uh, but the, and he sowed good seed into that field uh, that would become wheat for the harvest. But uh, Jesus, as he shares the parable, says, that night an enemy came along and sowed weeds into the field. And so the servants asked the master, well, what should we do? Should we, should we pull that all out now? He says, no, lest you, lest you harm the wheat. Let it, let it grow until the day of harvest. And then the master had his servants separate the weeds from the wheat, and they burned the weeds in the fire. And Jesus explains this parable in Matthew 13, verse 36. He says, Then he left the crowds and went into the house. And his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, The one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. So this speaks as Jesus tells us and explains this parable of the coming day of the Lord. When there are God's people and there are the devil's people all together. But a day is coming when that's going to get sorted out. And these wars and rumors of wars are but a foretaste and a warning of the day that is coming. As Joel is filled with a lot of bad news and a lot of hardship, it's also filled with a lot of hope as well. Joel calls Judah to repent in order to prevent the judgment. And we see that this becomes a turning point for the people of God. In chapter 2, verse 12, we read, Yet even now declares the Lord, Return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. And rend your hearts, not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. And who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. And Joel goes on to say, The Lord will have pity 
on those who repent. And for those who repent, Joel promises that the Lord will restore the land. He's going to restore the land. We read in chapter 2, verse 25, I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army, which I sent among you. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied. And praise the name of the Lord your God, who has dealt wondrously with you. So for those who repent, God promises to restore everything that you have lost. Everything that the people of God lost will be restored. The crops, the blessing will return to the land. Rain will fall on the land and bring times of refreshing once more. But more important than anything is the promise that the Spirit of God is going to be poured out upon them. In verse 28 of chapter 2, the Lord speaks through Joel and says, It shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants, in those days I will pour out my Spirit. And in verse 32, he says, And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And these days were pointing to a greater sign that would precipitate the day of the Lord, and that is the day of Pentecost. And the apostle Peter links the outpouring of the Spirit prophesied in Joel to the day of Pentecost, where the gospel would go forth in the language of every people. You know, I see that, and I wish the Lord would give me the gifts of tongues so I could just speak Norwegian without having to work at all. But this great sign that took place in the day of Pentecost was that the word of God, long foretold, is being fulfilled. The days of Joel are coming to pass, even as they come to pass now, as we continue the work of bringing the gospel to every tribe and tongue and nation. Peter makes this connection in his sermon at Pentecost when he says these things, he says to the crowd, these things you are seeing. This is just what the prophet Joel uttered in verse 16, but this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days, it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And he goes on citing Joel chapter 2. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And Peter says, we are living in these last days. In the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. You know, when we think about 
the doctrine of eschatology. That's the, the technical term for doctrine of the last things. We tend to think about that as merely something that's in the future. That's something that's going to happen whether in our lifetime or a thousand years from now. But a New Testament understanding of the last days is that the last days are now. These are the last days, and they've been around for 2,000 years. We understand the last days as the church age. This is the age between the comings of Christ. Jesus came his first time to deal with sin and then to ascend at the right hand of the Father to pour out his Spirit. So we confessed, we started confessing in the catechism in our service today, right? The doctrine of the Holy Spirit, of how redemption is effectively and effectually applied to us. These are the days that we're living in now. And sometimes we feel like, well, can't the Lord just come back? I'm kind of tired of dealing with Vladimir Putin. And I'm tired of dealing with my unbelieving boss. And I'm tired of wrestling with my own sinful flesh. But we're told that these last days are being prolonged so that people everywhere will have a chance to repent. These days are being prolonged because God is merciful and he wants people everywhere to repent. So not only does Peter help us understand the last days in Acts chapter 2, but also in his second letter, he writes to this point in 2 Peter 3.9, he says, The Lord is not slow. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So as slow as it feels to us, we want the Lord to come back now. The slowness is not slow in God's plan, but it's that all should reach repentance. But then Peter goes on to say, but a day is coming. The very next verse in 2 Peter 3, verse 10, he says, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar. And the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. So Peter even picks up this theme of desolation. That when the day of the Lord comes, there is going to be a destruction of creation that will at the same time turn to a renewal of it. But the whole creation will be laid desolate only to be renewed by the coming of the new creation. Just like the locusts wiped out everything, where where the prophet says it was the Garden of Eden before them, and it was a desert behind them. But what will be coming is a new creation. And the hope for us as the people of God is that this day of the Lord will not for the people of God be a day of terror, but a day of glory, of vindication, and joy where the people of God will be seen as right. They will be justified before the eyes of wicked men. They will be, maybe a better term, vindicated. That's part of the doctrine of our glorification. 
the wicked will be extinguished from the field, just like this parable of the weeds. And we will live in glory and joy with our God and one another, world without end. Amen. So even in the darkest of the prophets, and Joel is one of those very dark prophecies, there is the light of hope for the people of God. And as Peter went on to to tell those who are listening to him on the day of Pentecost, God, by his foreordained plan, offered up his son, whom you crucified. These people heard this message and were cut to the heart. And they said, what must we do to be saved from this coming judgment? And the application that Peter gives them is the same application for us. We live in the same age as when the day of Pentecost dawned, this church age. And he said to them in verse 38 of Acts chapter 2, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And he goes on telling him, save yourselves from this crooked generation. The reason we repent and the reason we are baptized and we baptize our children is to signify the hope of our redemption in Jesus Christ that this one who is crucified on our behalf is the one who has spared us from the day of the Lord that is coming so that it's no longer a day of terror, but a day of hope and a day of joy. So as we think about how to apply the book of Joel, brothers and sisters, we must return to the Lord. We must be Penitent. If you've not been baptized, be baptized. It is at the core of what gospel repentance looks like. Repent and be baptized. It is on our faith on display. And as that promises for our children too, it's our faith as a household saying, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. It's like the blood that's painted on the doorposts in Egypt and the Passover. It's us signifying that we stand with Christ and his blood covers us. It's the sign of our hope that what is coming is good. It's the sign of our hope that the best days are yet to come. Contrary to the nostalgia of our hearts that wants to look back when we were a little younger and had less wrinkles and less gray in our hair, when, uh, when life was better and easier, when whatever it was that happened in your life hadn't happened yet. Far from the best days being behind us, the best days are yet to come in Jesus Christ. So only the Lord knows what kinds of calamities we will face in our day, whether that's this year or a hundred years from now, we don't know what's coming. 
Only God does. But what we do know is that because we are covered by the blood of our Savior, whether the day of the Lord comes while we're living or when we are risen from the dead, for those who have put their faith in Jesus and have hidden under His grace and righteousness, we will wake up to joy and not to dread. And that's the gospel in Joel. That's the gospel in the New Testament. And that is the hope that I exhort each of you to cling to together, individually, and as families, and as a church. Let's pray.